fellow students, if you would open to Revelation 14, we're going to pick up the parable, so to speak, in 14. Last week, for those of you who heard the last couple of weeks, from a human perspective, it's been a pretty depressing last couple of weeks. We've been looking at Revelation from the perspective of the world. And if you look at chapter 13, we're introduced to the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we have a couple of weeks of teaching about the rise of evil on a worldwide basis. The world is suffering an epidemic of evil. If you think it's bad today, if you read chapter 13, you realize it's got to ripen a little bit more before the Lord is going to do what he is going to do. But we're going to take a look this week in chapter 14 from the perspective of God's point of view of what's going on from heaven's eyes. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, and it says, And I looked. This is John. He has a new vision. I looked and behold that when you see the word behold in the New Testament, it means, wow, amazing. So this is not just, oh, it's another vision. It is a wow. Okay. I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So today we're going to be introduced to 144,000 overcomers, victorious. This is the same group that we met in our earlier chapter 7, 144,000 evangelists that were set apart, Jewish males, to accomplish God's proclamation of the gospel during this time. One of the things you'll notice in the period of Revelation, and I never understood this until I began to study it seriously six months ago, is the gospel is epidemic throughout the tribulation period. You look at the tribulation and you think it's evil and wicked, and it is, but the gospel is everywhere in the book of Revelation. Evangelism is going on, and the 144,000 are only part of God's ministry to save the world out of this desperate period of time. So we have 144,000 that were set apart in chapter 7 to set aside to preach the good news during the whole seven-year period. So these evangelists are working that period of time and we know they're effective because if you look at Revelation 7, 9, you see the consequences, the fruit of their faithfulness. Revelation 7, 9 says that John saw a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they cry out with a loud voice saying what? Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this vast company, innumerable, is in part responsible for God's faithful working through these faithful people. See, no one gets saved without the power of God. We understand that, right? But he need, depends, the Lord depends on your faithfulness to proclaim that message, to herald that message. And that's what he's doing here. Interesting perspective. Today in the world, worldwide, there's about 50,000 missionaries, roughly. In the world, all around the world, 50,000. How big is this group? Three times that size. Three times that size, and they work for about a seven-year period. And they are preaching on a demon-controlled planet that worships Satan and massacres God's people. And there's a great multitude that is saved out of that because of their faithfulness. They've been persecuted by the Antichrist, but they are preserved by Jesus Christ. And here we see them as triumphant, overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're with Jesus Christ the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, when you look at the timing of this particular vision, it seems to take place at the very end of the tribulation. One of the things we've mentioned about Revelation in the past is each chapter is not necessarily chronological. Today, we're going to be introduced to three separate angels. These three are chronological, but there are some that don't always occur in sequence just because it's written here. So this vision John sees is toward the end of the Revelation period, Actually, 
verses 1, 2, and 3 occur at the end of the tribulation period in the millennial kingdom. So Jesus Christ is standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem with 144,000 on the earth. That's verse 1. When you look at verse 2, he's got a vision of heaven. So he has a vision of earth, he has a vision of heaven, and sometimes those two kind of bleed together. You'll notice a couple of things about the 144,000. What are they still wearing on their foreheads? What do they have? The seal, right? The seal that God set them apart as his own. Who else carries a mark in the tribulation period? The followers of the Antichrist get a mark on their right hand or on their forehead as well. A visible one. This seems to be invisible, but Jesus Christ knows his own. And I want you to notice something. There are exactly 144,000 in Revelation 7 at the beginning of the tribulation. And there are exactly 144,000 on Mount Zion after seven years of hell. There's not 143,999. You know what that means? Jesus brought in exactly the same as he called out. Jesus never loses any sheep. Jesus told his followers in John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And the last phrase should give you tremendous comfort. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one. Which means when you belong to him, you belong to him. Your security depends on him, not you, because you screw up routinely. And I'm in the head of that line. I'm in front of you in the screw up line, right? So when God's family gathers for the marriage supper of the Lamb, you know it's going to be interesting? There's going to be no empty seats at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There'll be nobody that didn't show up. And by the way, none of you will be late. Right? I mean, you're going to be on time. Right? <clears throat> God's going to bring all of his children home. I know some of you are looking at me and going, you don't know my spouse. Yeah, well, you know, Jesus, there'll be nothing to distract you, which will be great. God will bring all of his children home on schedule. He doesn't lose any sheep. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. So now we go seeing the 144,000 on the earth. Now John hears a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So he hears uh, th three different sounds. He hears a sound and he gives you three different metaphors for that sound. And by the way, the word voice here in the Greek can tra be translated as sound. So it's not necessarily a vocal, but it's a sound that sounds like Niagara Falls. It's a sound that sounds like thunder. And it's a sound that sounds like the music of harps. How many of you ever been to Niagara Falls? You know how I would describe Niagara Falls? Fortissimo. Fortissimo. I mean, it's an all-encompassing sound. And that's what he's hearing here. It's just thunderous. Now, if you go back to Revelation 5, you realize that there's 24 elders that are playing harps. And yet when you hear the, this sound described as thunder, you're persuaded that virtually the entire multitude in heaven, if not all of them, are playing harps. It is not 24 elders playing harps. It's everyone making a sound of praise to the Lamb. Harps are mentioned about 40 times in the Old Testament, and they are always associated with joy. Always with joy. So when you see harps being played, you know there's joy going on. Verse 3, it says they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now this is a song clearly of heavenly praise. 
It says they sang means ongoing singing, perpetual singing, continuous singing. They didn't sing and stop. This praise was perpetual. It was ongoing. They were in a process of continuous praise. And they were praising because the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has completed his work of redemption. How long has he been working at the work of redemption? From before the foundations of the world, right? Before he created us, the work of redemption was pre-planned and your names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the universe. That's how important, you know, it's a good thing that God's a planning God. Can you imagine if God had all his power and he wasn't very organized? You wouldn't see the universe as you currently see it at that point in time. So they're praising the Lamb because He's completed His work of redemption and He's returned to earth to begin His reign on earth. And we know that heaven rejoices over how many sinners getting saved? One. Luke 15 tells us several parables, and the, the most common parable, the best known, is the parable of the prodigal son. How many sons were prodigal? Well, there was actually two. The older brother was more prodigal than the one who ran away. But at any rate, heaven rejoices over the one son who returns to his father's home with joy. So this multitude is in heaven praising God with harps because of redemption of lost sinners. And the 144,000 there on Mount Zion and they're praising God for redeeming them and for his power and protecting them. They, it says they learned a new song, and it says only they could learn the song. And I struggled with that. I read several dozen commentaries about that. It's interesting that you and I praise God for the same thing. How many of you have been delivered by God from some particular hardship, struggle, trial, pain, etc., etc.? How many of you learned something new about God as a result of that deliverance, as a result of his keeping you, as a result of his faithfulness? You now have a new experience of God and therefore you have a new ability to praise him, yes? You praise him because he brought you through something that you didn't know before because you hadn't been through it. So when he lets you have trials... And some of them are already written in the book for next week. I can look at you and I look at me and I'm saying, there's trials coming in your future. Amen? Amen. He's already preordained them, but he's given you himself as the capacity to deal with it. You're going to have a new song next week. Some of you will, because he will carry you through the troubles of this coming week. And you will now have a new ability to praise him because you have a new experience of him. So when those trials come, don't whine worship. Don't pout praise. By the way, have you ever noticed that praise takes practice? True confession. I came to church today with a rotten attitude because we were late and I had to sit in the middle of the row. <laughs> Amara knows this. I like to sit on the edge of the row so I can get in here ahead of time. Yes, yes, I understand. Yes, I understand. <laughs> And so I'm sitting there in the middle of the row, and it's all about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's all about Jesus. And I'm going, Lord, you know, my attitude really, yes, it sucks. It, I mean, there's no other way to say it. So I, I, it took me about a song and a half to, you know, make it all about Jesus again. It's pretty tough, you know, you're singing about Jesus. You're going, man, you had a hard heart. Let's, let's repent of this hard heart. And you can praise him in new ways to get you over your little whine about sitting in the middle of the row. It's a little new song, but it's a new song, right? right yeah. He can get you through little things as well as big things. You know, true confessions time. Most of you know I have lots of warts, and now you know I have another one at that point in time. So, 
So we observe these spiritual overcomers on Mount Zion after their race is run, after they've survived seven years of hell on earth, after they fought the good fight and won. And of course, my question is, what made them so victorious in the middle of the most deadly spiritual environment in history? And I want you to look at verse four and five because we get a character description of these 144,000. It says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. You might want to get a pen and underline that phrase, follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They were blameless. Here's the principle. God projects his power through those who choose moral purity. It's a choice. The power comes from the Lord, but you make the choice. First, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Completely is There's tremendous power in single-mindedness, in unmixed, by the way, purity means unmixed, wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Now, the opposite of pure is to be defiled. And defiled means dirty, desecrated, soiled, smeared, stained, you get the picture. You know what pure white looks like when it comes out of the washing machine and you know what it looked like before it went into the washing machine, right? That's the picture here at that point in time. So the opposite of stained is spotless and our call is through God's power and by his enabling to choose to maintain a morally pure life. The church at Sardis in Revelation 3 was commended because it says, you have not defiled your garments. You haven't gotten morally dirty. You have made honorable choices to be obedient to God. Now, during this tribulation period, is the world filthy? Utterly filthy. It is filthy beyond recognition. There is The church has been raptured, so there's no divine restraint through people on evil. Right? I don't know that you understand how much restraint on evil you produce because the Holy Spirit lives in you and works through you and you are called to be what? Salt, which retards decay, and light, which shines light in the darkness. When the rapture comes, we talked about this two or three weeks ago, the entire Christian family is out of here. That's tremendous restraint against evil that will no longer be effective at this point in time. And so evil will proliferate at a rate that will be epidemic. People will be enslaved to their lusts and the 144,000 have kept themselves morally pure in a culture that is just a cesspool. Now some commentators interpret this focus on purity not to be sexual purity, but, sexual, but spiritual purity. Now it's pretty obvious that this group of evangelists have kept themselves spiritually pure. I mean, they haven't fallen into worship of the Antichrist or taking the mark, etc., etc. All Christians are called to be spiritually in moral purity. Other commentators suggest that not being defiled with women means this group is never married. However, sex within marriage never defiled anybody. Okay? Hebrews 13.4. For those of you that struggle with this, Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So God himself is the creator of marriage. God himself is the creator of marital sex. And he created it to enjoy before him, honorably and holy. However, this passage does say they are chaste, which means they're a physical virgin. So this group 
is celibate by calling. They're unmarried by calling and they live only to obey the Lamb. They have a ministry during this seven-year period of time that precludes their ability, their time, their energy to have a family. I mean, they are called by God to do whatever he calls them to do. If they're called to go confront the Antichrist, if they're called to go to a particular church and rebuke them, they go. 24 by 7, right? They're available, which means they're not committed to anything other than the Lamb at that point. That's not everyone's calling, but it's their calling, okay? The point is, what's God calling you to do? What's God calling you to do? I don't know in what frame of reference, I don't know what locale, I don't know what circumstance, but I know you and I have a calling to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, right? Say yes. yes. You are to be single-minded. Verse 4 says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Here's the principle. Sheep follow the shepherd. Write it down. Don't look at me like I'm talking Greek. Sheep follow the shepherd wherever whenever and however he leads. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right? If you're not following the good shepherd, maybe you don't belong to his flock. There's an old poem. Mary had a little lamb. His name I'm sure you know. And everywhere that Jesus went, this group was sure to follow. Good question. Are you part of the group that follows Jesus wherever he goes? Sheep follow the shepherd wherever, whenever, and however. Interesting question. I'm following the shepherd, but how closely am I following the shepherd? Do I want to see the path he's taking before I decide to follow? You know, a little lead time. Don't tailgate Jesus, the good shepherd. Now, you should be clutching his robe. That's how close you should be to the good shepherd, folks. See, sheep don't negotiate with the shepherd about what pasture they're going to visit tomorrow. Do they? If the shepherd says, we're going to this pasture, what do sheep do? They follow the shepherd, right? Sheep don't go on strike because they think they're underpaid. <laughs> you didn't pay me enough for my wool this week, you know, or this month or whatever. Sheep follow this good shepherd fully, just like Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land and they alone entered the promised land out of the 12 spies only because it says they followed the Lord fully, Numbers 14. So these 144,000 are completely loyal, fully devoted followers. By the way, for those of you that are interested in a little definition, follow means to adhere to, you know, like duct tape, adhere to, to conform to, to be devoted to. Here's an interesting concept. When you surrendered your life to Jesus as Savior, you also surrendered to Him as Lord. You know what Lord means? Master. And if He's the Master, what does that make us? The slave. Don't call it servant. It's a slave, right? That's what we are. I know our human flesh goes, Oh, I ain't anybody's slave. Yes, you are. You were bought by your master. You were created by your creator. And wonder of wonders, the master loves us. When you surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, it means you signed the check on your bank account called the rest of my life. You all have a bank account. It's called the rest of my life, right? And when you became a Christian, you signed a blank check called the rest of my life and you gave it to Jesus. And you know what he's going to do? 
He's going to fill in the amount. And do you know how much he's going to fill in? No, you don't know how much he's going to fill in. I'll guarantee you he's going to put more zeros in that account than you think you can afford. Yes? Say yes. You know he is. He's taking you places in five years you didn't want to go five years ago. And now you're praising him because he took you there. He's going to take you places in the next five years. I promise you, if he told you today, you'd run in terror. Five years from now, you're going to be singing a new song because the lamb has taken you in new places with new experiences. Follow the shepherd. Follow the shepherd closely, wherever he leads. That's the call here. This is their character. Verse 5. It says, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. These people spoke the truth of God to a lost world without compromise. The whole truth of the gospel. They're not sinless people, but their character is above reproach. When it says blameless, it means without blemish. This I don't even like, but it's the truth. You know what you qualify to do without blemish? If you're without flaw, you know what you're suitable for? Sacrifice. You know what they did with Old Testament animals? The perfect ones? The ones without blemish, the firstborn, what do they do? Sacrificed. So when you're without blemish, when you're without blame, when you're morally pure, you can present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. As a matter of fact, do it now because he's the one who will make you pure. He's the one who will make you without blemish. He's the one who will clean your life up. Don't wait to surrender. Don't wait to surrender. Do it now. Do it early. So God's going to use these surrendered, devoted 144,000 to reach a lost and rebellious world, but he's not limited just to people. This was shocking to me. Verse 6, he also uses angels to accomplish his purposes. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, right, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, this shocked me. This is the very last time in all of the Bible that the word gospel is used. This is it. You will never see gospel again used in the, in the Bible. What does that tell you? Pay attention. No more options. No more opportunity. This occurs near the very end of the tribulation, just before the seven bowl judgments that God's going to pour out. We're going to get to those in the next few weeks. He's virtually going to destroy the earth at that point in time. This angel really illustrates the extreme mercy of God. God is not willing that any should perish. Who does God normally commission to take his good news to a lost world? Who? People. You and I, right? It's interesting. I don't know what the status of the planet is at this point in time, but it may be so bad that humans are very restricted in their ability to do that. So God's going to now commission an angel. To preach the good news to the whole earth. Now this fulfills Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. I never understood this either. John, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel, Jesus is telling his followers, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. I always thought, well, if the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world, we're going to, you know, that relies on humans. Well, it does, but God is going to employ an angel at this point in time to bring the gospel to people who maybe can't hear it from human sources. And this angel is flying where? What does it say? Mid-heaven. It means the apex of the sky, the highest point in the sky. 
It's the greatest visibility for the earth. So this angel is going to be flying back and forth continually at the apex, at the height in mid-heaven, very visible to the entire planet. He's going to be preaching the gospel, the eternal gospel. He's going to preach it in every language. How do we know that? It says every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people group are going to hear it and comprehend it. Yes? Is this going to be supernatural? I would recommend highly if you saw an angel in mid-heaven preaching the gospel that you pay attention. Right? This preaching may go on for weeks. It may go on for months. It doesn't say how long. But the mercy of God wants the world to hear the gospel and respond to it before the bold judgments, because at that point in time, it's too late. Now, I've often wondered why the angel's flying in midair. The angelic pulpit is where? In the air. Do you know um, who's been thrown down to the earth? Satan. Satan's on the earth. Satan can't get him. He's in the air, and Satan can't leave the planet now. <laughs> Who else is on the earth? All the hundreds of millions of demons. They're now restricted to the earth as well. They can't get in the air either. So the angel has unobstructed ability to preach the gospel without any interference, as in Matthew 10. I mean, Daniel 10. God is making sure with this angel that everyone will have the opportunity to repent. No one will be able to say, I didn't know. I didn't hear. I, I'm ignorant. Everyone's going to hear. And by the way, I'm convinced they're probably going to hear it a whole lot more times than just this. It says an eternal gospel. This is the never-changing good news that Jesus proclaimed. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. What amazes me is this close to the end, the door to heaven is still open. Will the door to heaven always be open? No, there's going to come a day when it's going to be closed, but it's still open because God is gracious. What's the summary of the angelic message? Verse 7. The angel says with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Here's the principle. God warns you because he loves you. So don't despise God by neglecting his word. Now, I say that very intentionally. People say, well, I'm not despising God. I'm not disobeying. When you neglect what he says, you're disobeying. When you neglect what he says, when you procrastinate obedience, what do you call it when your kid does it? You call it disobedience, right? I told you to do something. You told me you'd get around to it next week. You know, when your five-year-old tells you they'll get around to it next week, that is not a good sign, right? It's not a good sign. God, God has the same opinion. When he says it's time to do something, it's time to do something. So this angel, it says, is speaking in what kind of voice? A loud voice. Do you know why? Because the angel is shouting because the time is urgent. And the issue is eternity. Virtually everyone on earth has already heard the gospel message. I mean, they've had 144,000 evangelists. They've had the two supernaturally empowered witnesses speaking the truth to them at that point in time. They've got the, the, those who've been redeemed during the tribulation speaking the gospel to them. Now God sends another angel to them. They already know the truth. They just haven't responded to the truth. So the summary of this angelic message is two things. Fear God and give him glory. Now, giving God glory means to treat him as God. 
to honor him as the creator and the king. To turn from Satan to God, from Antichrist to Jesus Christ. Here's the point. The angel's saying, stop, fear, stop worshiping and fearing Satan. He's just a creature. Worship God alone. He's the creator, the only creator. Fear God, revere God, worship God because he alone is creator. I want to tell you that I think fearing God is way underrated in this culture. And fearing man is way overrated. Jesus Christ gave you a little perspective in Matthew 10, 28. You ought to write this down and when you do, you ought to be shaking. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, you want to fear? I'll tell you somebody to fear. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Godly fear is highly appropriate in the presence of Almighty God, folks. This angel is absolutely trying to frighten people into faith. No question about it. There's no time to waste. The hour of judgment is when? Close, right? It's come. When it says the hour of God's judgment's at hand, the hour means it's been preset. It's been pre-planned. It's been on God's divine calendar. You know what that means? When God's judgment comes, what happens to grace? It's gone. What happens to the door to heaven? It's locked. Delay is over. This is an urgent message because it's the last call. Literally. Beyond this point, you never ever see any human being on planet Earth repenting in Revelation. Ever. At this point in time, from here on out, all they do is blaspheme God. All they do is point their finger at God, scream and curse. There's no repentance beyond this point. So this is extremely important. It says the hour of his judgment has come. They're talking about God's judgment. God's, the, when they talk about his judgment, what they mean is the wrath of God against sin. See, God's holiness has to destroy sin. What would God be like if he tolerated sin? He would not be holy. He would not be just. He would be corrupt. If he tolerated sin, he would become sin. God's not going to do that. God is everlasting, eternally holy, and he's going to destroy sin because he's holy. It says, fear God and worship him. I'm going to give you the definition of worship. It means to do homage to a sovereign by kissing their hand. You know, you're in the presence of a king. The king extends the scepter or the ring to you or the whatever it happens to be. And you kiss that by bowing down. You're prostrating yourself. You're bowing in worship and adoration. You are declaring that the monarch is above you. Yes? And you are below them. This is what the creature does to the creator. Because he is your creator. That's why I emphasized earlier, the creature always bows down to the creator. Humans, because of our sin, we rebel against the Creator instead of obeying the Creator. This angel says, worship Him, bow down before Him, give Him adoration because He made the heaven and the earth. He is worthy of worship because He's the Creator. Here's the picture. The creation is God's calling card. The creation is evidence that God has left behind of His existence. The universe is the effect the creator is the cause. 
Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And the firmament, the sky proclaims the work of his hand. Now, can the creator do whatever he wants with what he created? Does that include you on that list? Uh-huh. Me too. The purpose of the creation is what? To bring glory to the creator. Scripture says we were created for his pleasure. So one of our passions should be to bring pleasure to our king, to bring pleasure to the lamb by our obedience and by our love. It's a great privilege to have a relationship with a creator. It's actually mind-blowing. So now John sees a second angel. The second angel's not proclaiming the gospel. The second angel's declaring judgment. This is ratcheting the pressure up here, folks. Verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed the first one, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The sad part about angel number two, you know why angel number two is necessary? They didn't respond to angel number one, right? Angel number two had to come along and say, folks, Babylon is being destroyed. Now, there's an enormous amount of controversy uh, among what Babylon represents. Let me give you a little history. Babylon was a literal city on the banks of the Euphrates River that was founded by Nimrod, Genesis 10, Genesis 11. Nimrod was one of the first God-haters listed in Scripture. This city of, of, uh, of uh, Babylon has been rebuilt by Saddam Hussein as a ceremonial site. It's not a metropolitan city. It's not a commercial center yet. It's not an economic center yet. But Babylon throughout Scripture, every time you see Babylon in Scripture, it represents the seat of Satan. It represents the center of man's rebellion against God. Babylon always is the home of demons. So the city of God is, what do we sing about today? What's the city of God? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city of man, the city of Satan, the city of opposition to God, the city of idolatry, the city of rebellion is always Babylon. There's nothing good said about Scripture in Babylon. So when they talk about Babylon has fallen here, there's probably two or three ways we can interpret that. Number one, it means a literal city in Iraq. Likely that the Antichrist is going to reign from the second half of the tribulation. By the way, we know he's going to reign the first half of the tribulation from Jerusalem, and he may well have a residence in Rome as well. i got some questions on that, but I'm pretty sure if you take a literal interpretation, he's going to be reigning from Babylon during a period of time. Now, this angel calls this city Babylon the Great. Oh, that's going to mean that Babylon's going to have to get built up a whole lot more than it is right now if it's going to be the, uh, the city of size and importance that Revelation 17 and 18 talk about. But what Babylon also represents, beyond a literal city, Babylon represents religious, economic, and political marriage of church and state. Put that in your head. Anytime you see Babylon, it represents a religious, economic, and political marriage of church and state that is controlled by the Antichrist. So it's a worldwide empire modeled on the Roman Empire, and it's going to be opposed to God and run by the Antichrist. And it's as idolatrous as ancient Babylon because this, this empire is going to worship a man called the beast, right? That's what this empire is going to do. It's going to be the empire of the Antichrist. So this Babylon 
has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I want you to understand, in Scripture, when you see the word fornication here, he's talking about spiritual idolatry. Spiritual adultery. Spiritual idolatry. It's unfaithfulness to God. So Babylon has been a very evil influence on the nations of the earth. The Garden of Eden was probably right near the Euphrates River. That's the first time we see Satan show up. Right here, Middle East, on the banks of the Euphrates River, when he tempted Adam and Eve, right? Ever since then, it's been a sin of rebellion against God. So God's going to destroy her. What the angel number two, what the angel is saying, the second angel is telling these people on the earth, your empire of evil, rebellion against God, run by the Antichrist, I'm going to destroy. And when God speaks something, even though it hasn't yet happened, it is so certain, it's as good as done, they speak in the present tense. They said Babylon has fallen, not will, has. So we have the first angel proclaiming gospel. We have the second angel declaring that Antichrist's empire is going to fall. The third angel now ratchets up uh, one step further. And this is really a tough passage. He proclaims damnation upon any individual who worships the beast and takes his mark. Verse 9. This is probably some of the most serious words in Scripture. Another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up, underline it, how long? Forever, Forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. And those who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark. Here's the principle. Both heaven and hell last forever. Jesus is the only way to heaven, so follow only him. This is the last call in Scripture before the curtain call falls. The lights go out and the doors are closed. This is it. Forever. This message is to the world who's heard the gospel, understood the gospel message, and has still decided to reject Jesus Christ and worship Antichrist by taking the mark. When you take the mark of the beast, that's a choice. It says, I declare my loyalty and my worship for Satan and the Antichrist, and I reject the gospel in Jesus Christ. That's what taking the mark means. It's a choice. God says, if you do that, you will now have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. You've drunk the sinful passion, the cup of the Antichrist. I'm going to force this drink down your throat. The wrath of God is God's righteous anger against sin. And how did they say that cup was mixed? It says it was mixed in full strength. That means it's undiluted. It's unmixed. No water. Remember, during that day, most of the wine that was drunk was mixed with water at least three to one. Sometimes four to one or five to one. And we drank it just like we drink water for refreshment. When you drank wine back then, you drank it for just like we do refreshment like water. They put wine in because the water had so much bacteria in it, the alcohol in the wine was a purification mechanism. 
You didn't drink wine to get drunk, you drank wine as liquid, but you had to cut it with three or four or five times as much water so you wouldn't, it wouldn't have an inebriating effect on you, but you needed the liquid, but you needed it pure. So you put wine as, as a pharmaceutical, as a product to, to take care of the bacteria at that point. Non-diluted wine was full strength. And many times they would mix in spices to make it even more potent and more pungent. So when they talk about mixed wine, mixed wine is always fortified wine. Mixed wine is always stronger than just plain wine, right? So they're talking about the wrath of God being unmixed with water, but it's mixed full strength. In other words, it's going to be powerful. God's full strength anger against sin is going to be what? Eternal torment, verse 10. It says they will be tormented. By the way, if you want another word, just write tortured. Just write tortured in, tormented. With fire and brimstone of the presence of the holy angels. Here's what tormented means. Unrelieved, unbearable pain forever. No break, no let up, no recess, never diminished. Ongoing, it's unbearable and you're going to bear it forever. I can't wrap my mind about that. If you want a picture of that, Luke 16, the rich man in Hades gives you a pretty good picture. It says fire and brimstone. What does fire and brimstone remind you of? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes you'll see a volcanic eruption with lava. That's probably not a bad picture, except this lava will burn you and you won't die. It'll burn you and you won't burn up. You'll just keep burning in perpetuity. Nope, you can't put it out. That's a good word picture. In Vietnam, we called it napalm. I mean, it'd burn you, it'd keep burning, you can't get rid of it at that. It's a good, good picture at that point in time. Now, those tortured in hell are not going to be in isolation. Who's watching them? Who's watching them? The holy angels and the lamb are watching this suffering. Do you think that's going to produce some guilt and shame in the lives of those who are in hell? To have holiness observe your condition. I would think. I would think that's going to be part of the punishment. These folks knew that they could have gone to heaven. And they chose to reject Jesus the way into heaven and choose to worship the Antichrist even though it's going to lead them to hell. Now, if you want to know what Jesus said about this, underline Luke 13, 28. Luke 13, 28. Jesus said there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you, the ones in hell, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God that's in heaven and you yourselves being cast out. That's going to be part of the torment. So apparently the Christ rejectors in hell will be able to see the redeemed enjoying heaven. For all eternity. Knowing that it was available to you and you chose to reject it. By the way, no one gets sent to hell for their sins. No one. The, you choose to go to hell when you reject God's provision for your sins, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. The opportunity to be forgiven is available to all. Right? Right? You choose to reject Jesus Christ, you choose to go to hell. He has made provision for all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us how many? 
all, cleanses us from all sin at that point in time. So those in the lake of fire choose to be there. I talk to people all the time that say, God is going to send me to hell. I said, no, you're choosing to go to hell. He's made provision for you not to go. He doesn't want you to go. He's proclaiming the gospel throughout this tribulation period, trying to persuade you to choose to go to heaven with him. You're rejecting it. So those in hell choose to be there. They will be separated from God's mercy, his goodness, his loving kindness, his grace, but they will never be separated from God's control. Here's a little thought for you. God is as fully in control of hell as he is of heaven. They are both creations of God. Now you need to understand that hell was never created for people. The lake of fire was designed for Satan and the demons. Never designed for humans. That's not his intent. But God knew that there were going to be those who rejected the blood of his precious son and chose to be separated from God. He knew that from before the foundations of the world. So to extent, I've got to modify my first one. I said it was never designed for humans. It's not God's willing heart that any should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But if you choose to be separated from him, he has a place where that will be. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Jesus told you in Mark 9, 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. So it's going to be unbearable and unending suffering. There's no annihilationism. And by the way, there's no purgatory either. Get that out of your head. Purgatory is not biblical. And I'll just, I'm just going to camp on this one because i got a burr on this one. Here's why purgatory is not biblical. Purgatory says, if you have not been sufficiently made holy in this life, you will need to go to a place of intermediate suffering to purge you from your sin until you are holy enough to get into heaven. You know what that does? It tells me that the blood of Jesus Christ was not sufficient. It tells me that when Jesus said, to tell us die, paid in full, that he was lying, that your sins are not paid in full, you got to pay for them yourself. That means that mankind earns their way into heaven by suffering. That is not biblical. Period. End of story. Jesus said it is finished. He died once for all. So I've got a lot of Roman Catholic friends. They believe this. This is not a biblical doctrine. It's not a biblical doctrine. There, are, there is no second chance. People say, well, I want a second chance. I go, you got your whole life. How about today? You'll have a second chance tomorrow if the God gives you grace. Don't tell me you want a second chance later. Take it now. Verse 12. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What he's saying is the saints in glory, the martyrs in glory, are now seeing the vindication of their faith. How many of you ever said, I wish God would just come back and take care of this? <laughs> How long is evil going to prosper? How can people get away with this stuff? I'm telling you, the day is coming. The day is coming. And when people who want God to do justice come back and they read this and they go forever and ever and ever and ever suffering, it takes their, they have no idea. I'm going, God's going to take care of evil. But it's his mercy he doesn't take care of it today because if he took care of it today, he'd have to take you out and me, right? With the exception of those that are covered by the blood, which is us. Don't ever, ever, ever forget that the greatest miracle in all of life is the gift of salvation. Amen. 
You want to see something supernatural, you don't have to worry about walking on the water or turning stones into bread. The fact that Jesus Christ has saved your and my soul is the greatest miracle in the universe. Amen. Greatest miracle in the universe. Don't ever forget that. And now his saints in glory, the martyrs, are going to see that. He is dealing with evil on the planet, and it's, they say it's worth it. Verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labor, for their deeds follow with them. Twelve times in Revelation, John is commanded to write. Boy, I'm glad he wrote it down, huh? I'm really glad he didn't get writer's cramp. I'm glad he wrote it. It says, those who die in the, in the Lord, Christians who die at this time in the tribulation, almost all of them are dying as martyrs. Almost all of them. And they are blessed because they choose to die for their faith rather than to worship the Antichrist. Almighty God pronounces a divine blessing on them at that point in time. You know one of the blessings of heaven here that I, I, I guess as I'm now aging is what does he promise? What does he say? R-E-S-T spells what? Rest. rest. One of the payoffs of heaven is rest. Do you ever get tired of struggling with sin in your own life? I'm not talking about somebody else's life. Just sin in your own life. Do you ever get tired of the struggle? It never lets you alone. You're always tempted. The body betrays you. One of the payoffs is you get rest. I'm, I'm intrigued that one of the curses of hell is it says they get no rest day and night. There's no rest. Forever. They're always tired. Forever. That's the least of the problems. One of the blessings is your struggle against sin and Satan is over, is over. And that's one of the great joys because many of us have loved ones in heaven. You know something? Their fight is done. The 144,000, they finished the race. And us, you and I are in the race. This is supposed to encourage us. It says, stay in the race. Don't get distracted by the stuff of this life. You ain't here long, right? You got a few more decades. Some of you don't have a few more decades. Some of you got a few more decades. Jenna and Max, I think, Lord willing, you'll be here in 60 years serving Jesus. All right. And he says, why does it matter? Underline this phrase. This one motivates me like crazy. The last five, six words of this verse say, for their deeds, follow with them. What you do in this life matters forever. Your faithfulness in serving Jesus, God remembers. God remembers. And he rewards, 1 Corinthians 3. All right, here's our summary, and then Tom, come up and do prayer requests. Number one, God projects his power through those who choose moral purity. Always choose moral purity. Number two, sheep follow the shepherd wherever, whenever, however he leads. They follow him fully and they follow him closely. Number three, God warns you because he loves you. I know none of us like warnings. Do you know that if God didn't warn you, he would be letting you go further into sin, further away from him so your judgment would be greater? When God warns you, that's an indication of his love. Right? Don't despise God by neglecting his word or procrastinating his word. Lastly, both heaven and hell last forever. Jesus is the only way to heaven, so follow only him. Okay. 
Now that you know, do. do. 